Welcome to the Sages Among Us. What makes a community great? Most importantly, it's the people who live and work there and are engaged in community life. The Sages Among Us focuses on those people, what they do and why they do it, and celebrates the leadership, time, and energy they bring to making a positive difference for all of us. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank, and I'm very pleased to introduce you to my guest tonight, Scott Beasley, an adventurer, athlete, certified financial planner, lifelong learner, search and rescue volunteer, and volunteer for many more organizations. Scott, welcome to the Sages Among Us. Thanks for having me, Lori. Well, it's great to have you here, and, and we always like to get to know a little bit about our guests. And where did you grow up, Scott? I grew up in a rural small town in southeast Michigan. It's it's one of those towns that we look back on that because they don't exist anymore. Um, you know, in a sense, because the unique little downtown that used to look half the size of Nevada City is now paved over and, uh, you know, loaded with chain stores, but also quite literally they they shut down the post office, so technically the city doesn't exist on paper anymore. Aww. Well, when you were growing up, uh, who were some of your role models? Um, you know, looking back, there's a lot of people that shaped my life. I, I don't know at the time I would have told you I, I had any role models, but, you know, my, my parents, of course, um, two people who came from, you know, came from nothing and did really well for themselves without an education, without any real support. Um, of course, they had a huge impact on my life. Um, one of my first teachers was a, uh, a a rock climber who took a nasty fall, um, became paraplegic, but still had a life involved in sports and coaching and, and, you know, doing his own thing. He definitely shaped my life. And then I was fortunate enough to have an amazing mentor um, right out of college who took me under his wing and, and someone that I am still in touch with to this day, you know, 20, 20 some odd years later. Wow. Well, when you were growing up, did you have any idea what you wanted to be? Uh, not a clue. Not <laughs> a clue. I mean, I, if we're being honest, I, uh, I started working when I was like 11 uh, years old at a golf course. And, you know, when you, you come from no money and start working at a golf club and seeing people with Cadillacs and, you know, nice vehicles, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure the only thing I wanted to be at that age was, was wealthy and, you know, have a nice uh, green DeVille at the time. So fortunately, I grew out of that phase. <laughs> Well, uh, so you did go to college, and, and where did you go to college? Uh, went to undergrad at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor uh, for economics, um, and then flash forward 20 years and change, um, I'm back in school um, for data analytics for policy through Johns Hopkins. So you're obviously not going to the East Coast, so that's an, you're able to do that online. For the most part, there's definitely going to be some trips to D.C. Um, back and forth. But, um, you know, data analytics is, by nature, um, grind no on the computer. Um, so there's a whole lot of that going on right here in Nevada County. Very interesting. Well, um, I want to ask you a little bit more about your work in a few moments. But when you first 
started working, you said your first job was when you were 11 on the golf course. What were some of your other early jobs? Um, well, I didn't have a lot of other jobs, to be honest. Um, I had this habit of sticking to things and, um, you know, I, I like to describe it a, uh, uh, like a, a well-focused addiction, uh, addictive personality. Um, so I forged a birth certificate. I was really tall, really pudgy, young 11 year old. So forged a birth certificate, started caddying at the golf course, left there 10 years later when I was 21, um, going into my junior year of school college um and at that point that how old did they think you were right yeah they figured it out at some point i think i came <laughs> clean but you know the, the 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 early late 80s early 90s were a little uh faster and looser as far as uh, human resource concerns were uh thought of um that was a summer job in the winter i uh about that same age i started volunteering for ymca they eventually brought me on staff um that was a job again i i probably got on the payroll when i was 14 or 15, having volunteered a couple years before that, didn't leave there until um, I was 22 and getting out of college. Um, so those are the those are the first two two jobs. That if I, those I are addictions, that sounds like those sound like good addictions. The ability to focus <laughs> right. and, and to commit. Um, what are some of the lessons that you learned from those early jobs? Oh, I, I, hard work and an open mind have really been kind of the the two things that when I look back have categorically led to nearly every success in my life. And I I definitely learned both of those things on those jobs. Um, You know, again, my parents set the tone of that if you work hard, you can get a lot done. And, you know, we called it lugging vinyl, you know, carrying the old, you know, vinyl golf bags on the golf course and and lugging (laughs) vinyl in the hot summer sun and the, with the Midwest, you know, 90% humidity, definitely taught me the value of hard work and, and then a, a hundred little things. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough. My first boss was a gentleman by the name of Gene Bone, um, a retired pro. We, we just lost Gene this last year. Um, incidentally, out loud, right? There's the first time I ever called him Gene. Uh, we lost Mr. Bone um, a year ago. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, he, just little things. Like he, first day, he said, all right, those of you who drove here, you park in the back row front rows for for members and clients you know staff parks and back and still today if you show up to my office you'll find my motorcycle in the back row um so just a lot of those those little things that you know maybe didn't seem significant at the time but have set the tone for you know uh, maybe on a bigger scale of how i treat you know my volunteers my clients and, and and those who support me well, I know you did get out of that small little town, and uh, you've lived a variety of places. What are some of the places that you've lived? The the, the big two stops were um, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, you know, brief stops in San Diego and in Delhi, um, but it was you know all of those big cities, and I'm not a big city guy at all. Um, so I, I, I knew early on, if not in college, that I, 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 I craved the outdoors and wanted access to that. And, um, yeah, I was, was fortunate enough to move to Nevada City, um, you know, a number of years ago and, 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 and have that direct access to nature. But, yeah, I've definitely bounced around to some big cities. Well, and what about some of the places that you've traveled um, yes, I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've, 
Um, I, yeah, I, 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 the travel bug bit me, uh, long ago. So I, I, I've been to all, but I believe three States, including Alaska and two that I won't mention because I really don't need to go see them. Um, and then I've been to 30 some countries, um, ethnically I'm Macedonian. So for the longitudinally challenge, that's, uh, the country directly North of, of Greece. Um, I've been back there, found my Baba and Dedo, uh, my, my grandparents, um, uh, old village. Um, you can literally like reach into the brick walls and just crush them with your hands. Um, wow. it, it's fallen to the ground, um, aside from some herders using, you know, the buildings to keep their sheep as they're passing through. It's, it's an abandoned area, but I've, I found that. And, and from there I branched out and pretty much traveled all of Yugoslavia uh, former Yugoslavia, um, and um, you know I've done uh, Central Asia, Sri Lanka, India, Nepal, um, and I've I've really tried. Like I still consider myself young. I, you know I hope I always do, but um, while I'm healthy, I, I, I I'm still trying to tick off all of the dirt bag travel locations while I'm still comfortable. You know sleeping in you know, sleeping on the, the dirt floor and, and, and hiking 10 miles to get to my destination and, and, and that. So I've, I've done a lot of third world travel. So I've been to way northern Albania. I've, you know, crossed over to get to the southern part of Haiti on a steak truck. Um, I've, um, you know, been through the central highlands of Sri Lanka, um, traveled overland through Oman and, uh, some of the Emirates, not that the Emirates are, you know, third world at all, but, um, you know, more of that adventure travel has kind of been my MO lately. Um, I, I, I'm excited to see Paris. I'm sure it's lovely. Um, and when the cruise boat and tour ship takes me there in my seventies, I'll look forward to it. But <laughs> until then I, I continue to, you know, travel places where I can, you know, contract amazing disease and see equally amazing places. Well, you're listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Lori Burkhart-Frank, and I'm talking to Scott Beasley, who is active in making our community and world a better place to live and thrive. Um, and we're going to get to some of the amazing volunteer work that you do. But I know um, you mentioned that that indirectly you met your wife through travel. Um, do you care to share that story with us? I'd be happy to, and I will attempt to make it as short as possible here in the interest of our, our listeners. Um, my wife and I met through a nonprofit yoga studio in Minneapolis where I was a board member and she was a volunteer for the community outreach program. Um, we met in passing and got to know each other a little bit better during a five-day um, uh, yoga training. Um, this is in Minneapolis. We both had our own lives. I was in a long-term relationship, um, but we got along really well. I had an inappropriate crush on her, never acted on it. Um, I left town and um, traveled the U.S. I, I have a lot of clients that I have hired me from around the States, and I, I, I traveled the U.S. to um, meet a lot of those clients face-to-face for the first time. So literally like Florida through the Deep South, meetings in Texas. By the time I got to the Bay Area, one of the several Bay Area clients had moved to San Diego. And I thought, oh, man, like I just drove like thousands of miles. And I guess I now have to drive to San Diego. So go to San Diego, do the meeting, throw the car in storage in a place called La Jolla that I never heard of until 
found the ad for storage outside of San Diego. Um, I went overseas, did a few months in Sri Lanka, India, and Nepal. And as I'm walking out of the Taj Mahal, um, if you haven't been to India, as you might suspect, the sun is really bright outside and the Taj Mahal is really dark on the inside. And after spending, you know, five, ten minutes inside the Taj, I was walking out with my eyes adjusted and looking at a couple about 10 feet away from me that were my now wives, uh, uh, were her cousins. And they're mouthing, like, we think it's him. It can't be him. Is it him? And, and again, remember, my eyes are adjusted to the dark light, so I can see them perfectly fine. I know they're making eye contact with me. They don't know they're making eye contact with me. Um, so I'm like, hey, guys, it's me. And as it turns out, we had the same teacher that we were about to go into retreat with and found out through three weeks of retreat with Wendy's cousins that um, she had moved to La Jolla and lived about, you know, a mile um, from where my car was in storage. Um, she'd moved there after my car was in storage. So just to be clear, wasn't creeping on her. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so flash forward a month or two, I forget how much travel I had left. Um, yeah, she met me at the airport, picked me up. And I'd love to tell you the rest is history, but she pretty much wanted nothing to do with me. But, you know, I uh, didn't give up. And uh, she, um, I, I had moved up to Nevada City and she came for a visit. And like so many of us here in Nevada County, she came once for the visit and uh, fell in love and never left. I, I don't know if it was me or the mountains in the Sierra, um, but yeah, that was how we met and, and how we reconnected well, I think randomly. Pretty, pretty cool story. Uh, when you first moved to Nevada County, uh, where did you live? Um, well, for a couple of days, Scott's Flat Campground, uh, until I figured it out. Um, I knew I wanted to live here. I didn't know how it was going to work. Um, my, my first big move for housing was um, a 19-acre uh, off-grid homestead um, in rural Nevada County. It was seven miles just outside of town. And Lindy and I spent a few years developing that property, uh, 100% uh, off-grid solar, gravity-fed water, um, and what started off as a cute little yurt project and turned into um, quite the homestead with you know, a, uh, my only manual labor skill is stonework. So, you know, the custom stonework bathroom and, you know, Lindy went full Pinterest on the, the kitchen. And, um, so yeah, we, we spent a number of years developing that and at the start of the pandemic, um, treated us really well, but we thought it was a good time to move on. So we've since sold that property and moved to the big city of Grass Valley. Yes. That is a big city when you're out there. Yeah. Uh, off the grid, so that's that is yeah. interesting. Well, so what is your actual profession, Scott? Yeah, so um, I became an independent financial advisor while I was in college, which is kind of a, a crazy way to go about it, but no regrets. And um, yeah, to this day, I, I continue my work as a certified financial planner doing comprehensive planning with a bend towards socially responsible investing. And what does that mean, social respons- socially responsible investing? Can you give us a little bit more um, detail of, of what your clients can expect? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the bigger part is the comprehensive planning where all of my clients, you know, have a tax projection and an estate plan that's done with a local attorney and, um, you know, looking at all of the insurances, including fire insurance in this county, of course, and all of that. But the the socially responsible investment part is, um, you know, where we put our money matters. And it certainly matters more where you spend your money every day and which grocery store you go to and what car you drive. But the assets in your portfolio also can make a difference. And the socially responsible investments are geared towards um, making an impact with the dollar. So back in the day, it used to be just like avoid tobacco, alcohol, and oil. Um, Nowadays, things are making a, a tangible impact. My favorite story to tie this to one of my favorite volunteer gigs in this town is I, I screen films and, and I'm an MC for the circle, the South Yuba River Citizens League uh, Wild and Scenic Film Fest. And a couple years ago, they had a horrific film about slavery in Malaysia where Thai and Lao fishermen go to the dock, think they're getting a great job. Next thing they know, they're enslaved. And I was perfectly naive that this existed in the modern world. So shame on me for that. But that movie was horrifying and educated me to it. Um, a an investment company out there um, pooled investments, you know, from my clients and millions, quite literally millions, others around the, the country, and put the screws to a big name uh, company that is the the biggest wholesaler of fish um, to restaurants in the U.S. and like literally put local dialect speakers on boats around the seas of Malaysia and cleaned up their whole supply chain. So. You know, as a vegetarian, as I sit here with, you know, a belly full of, you know, vegan food and overpriced, you know, vegan shoes on with my rescue dog at my side, um, I, I can't say that, like, you know, fishing in general is something I care to support. But just knowing that, you know, inside of the investment portfolio that I have some of my money in and as well as clients, we can help make that a cleaner process that's better for the overall social good, you know, is a, is a, a pretty remarkable thing. It is, it is remarkable how that can be connected just uh, in terms of your volunteer work. And I do want to move into your volunteer work. Um, but yeah. first, I just want to touch on briefly, you shared with me that you're a lifelong athlete. And could you share just some of the, quickly, some of the activities and competitions you've been part of? Yeah, I'm, I'm in that gray space between uh, being a, a has-been and a, a never-was. Um, I, I, I'm athletic enough to kind of do anything, but not good enough to, like, really compete at anything. So, yeah, I played team sports growing up, um, got into endurance sports uh, in my 20s. I've done a, you know, done a couple Ironman triathletes. For a while, I had my spot on Team USA for off-road triathlon, which unfortunately was lost. Um, with me just making a poor decision on Newtown Road and playing my bicycle into that rock face on the hairpin turn downhill from the Willow. If you're local, you know exactly the turn I'm talking about. Um, and you could still find my DNA on that rock, perhaps. <laughs> um, and, you know, and in between, I've done some other things. I, I had one ill-fated day of a, a semi-pro volleyball uh, tournament. And, you know, I just, I'm, I'm still active. Um, if this were live, you'd be smelling the chlorine from my hair as I just left the pool. Um, but, yeah, I'm no longer competing. Well, do, do you think that your love of the outdoors and pushing yourself as an athlete influenced your community involvement? Hands down. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, I, I got plugged in with 
circle because I, you know, love the outdoors and think that there is more that we can be doing for the environment. And I'm not going to be the scientist who solves, you know, climate change or whatever the big issue is, plastics in the sea. But in my little way, I can I can be on the film review committee and, and give my two cents there. Um, search and rescue, though, my last couple of years have been spent in the trailer managing searches started because, you know, I found out that you can hike around the woods and crawl on knees and elbows through the manzanita and, you know, do good and like help find people and bring them home to their families. So that's how, you know, search and rescue became something that I was intrigued in. It was just, I'm new to the Sierra. I don't know the area that well, but what the heck, if I can join up with a group of veteran hikers, you know, backcountry motorcycles, people, skiers, snowshoers, et cetera, that that sounded like an amazing idea. So that is exactly why I joined Search and Rescue Circle and, and so many other things that I, I do around town. Well, you're listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Lori Burkhart frank and I'm talking today to Scott Beasley. Scott, uh, have you uh, held any leadership positions in Search and Rescue? Yeah, for sure. I, I spent about two years leading the crisis intervention team, um, which provides emotional support and, and, and comfort to not just our um, subjects that we, we find in the woods, but also to their families and some of the news that has to be delivered to them. Uh, I went on to lead our ground team for two years. Um, the ground team is essentially everyone. So if you're on search and rescue, you are what we kind of pejoratively call a, a ground pounder, where you're just out there on, on two boots. Um, and I led led that group for a couple years. And um, just as of last month, I, I stepped down after about two years of leading our incident command team, which is the group of uh, the group of experienced searchers and, and nerds who who sit in the trailer and try to solve the puzzle of where are they at and how do we get to them. Well, what's one of the most rewarding experiences that you've had as a search and rescue volunteer? Oh man, you're making me cry in the air, aren't you? Um, <laughs> Um, gosh, there's so many, um, to be there when you find the subject, um, I, I've had the good fortune to be first on scene in 20 some rescues. Um, so to be there, like, you know, this last winter on the backside of Bowman Lake, um, you know, in, in waist-deep snow, and there's four people huddling, huddling around, a, you know, the remains of a $20,000 razor 4 by 4 that they're burning to the ground for survival. And, you know, someone in tears gives you a big hug. Mm. Well, it's, yeah, now, I know you're not the only right. one. How many folks are in our community that are part of this? It is a huge team. Um, we have, um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be off a little bit. I, I want to say there's 120 mission ready members, meaning people that we can comfortably deploy on a search. Um, there within that is a, a core group of, you know, maybe 45 people who show up to, um, more than 10 events a year. That's 10 actual searches. Um, plus, you know, probably 20 trainings to be prepared for those 10 searches. Um, and, and then there's a, you know, a core group within that of 12 people who might be volunteers, but they actually have an obligation to respond. So when your phone blows up and it's 
3 a.m. on a Tuesday and your day job starts in four hours, you're deploying. When it was Christmas 2018 and you're with your family and our phone went off, you deploy. Mm -hmm. Um, So varying degrees of commitment, but the overall team, it takes 120 people, all unpaid, all pay for the bulk of their own gear um, to keep that team running. That, that's so amazing, that, that commitment and that expertise that we have um, in our community and the fact that you've been involved in it for so long. Uh, are the search and rescue volunteers involved in wildfires at all? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and it's one of the uh, better-kept secrets, I guess, for what we do. Um, Nevada County Sheriff's Search and Rescue provides overhead support for evacuations. So when the when the call out comes for fire um the the second there's evacuations which are led by the sheriff's office search and rescue actually keeps track of all those sheriff's deputies who are out there in the field so when you have something like you know the river fire that escalates really quickly um you probably saw that picture of two orange shirts at the back of a truck huddled over a couple of computers Mm-hmm. That was us keeping track of, uh, I, I took that, I was on the other side of that that, that camera phone. Um, so there were three of us on scene keeping track of the sheriff's office as well as the contact made and not made of the individuals who uh, were under evacuation order for that fire. So you're saying that every single home is recorded as whether as an officer was able to make uh, connection with the person to see if they were out of their homes or not? That's the ultimate goal. I mean, it when you have an event that escalates quickly and there's, you know, 10 local law enforcement, maybe a handful of people supporting us from Placer, you know, Yuba County running code, meaning lights and sirens, driving quickly. Um, it, it's hard to keep track of everything, but at the end of the day, we would be the ones responsible for the bulk of that data, um, working, of course, hand-in-hand with the fire department. So, like, we're right there with Chief Matthias as he's calling the shots for fire. You know, neck, you know, shoulder-to-shoulder with him is going to be, you know, a um, uh, an officer in charge from the sheriff's office. So, you know, next to him might be Sergeant Ray Cress. Then you've got us volunteers. Um, we're in constant communication via phone, radio, or satellite to the um, OES office um, and, and Bobby Jacobs and Paul Cummings and their team. So it, it, it's a full team effort. Um, search and rescue, again, we just we, we bring the nerds and the tech is what we do. Well, it's fascinating to me because I had thought that it was mostly that crawling around uh, under the manzanita bushes, so it is interesting to know there's so much more to it. And there's so much more I'd love to talk to you about, but we are getting close to the end of the show. I just want to touch base on the fact that you are also uh, the vice chair for Center for Nonprofit Leadership, so could you just briefly tell us a little bit about that organization and why you decided to, to volunteer for them? You know, in short, it's to leverage my time and energy to do more good with the good I'm trying to do, because there is no other organization in Nevada County that leverages their work like CNL. So CNL, if you don't know, Center for Nonprofit Leadership is the not-for-profit that consults to other not-for-profits. So CNL um, strengthens the, their goal is to strengthen the entire nonprofit community here in Nevada County. 
Well, you really do do volunteer so many, so many places. And I always like to ask our guests um, if you have the power to wave a magic wand and improve our community in some way to create something or make a problem go away, what would you? What would that be for you? Um, and this is a magic wand with one wave, not a uh, the genie bottle where I get three. <laughs> well, you can try. We'll, we'll go. We'll start with one and see if you could get three. <laughs> you, you know, I, the financial advisor in me says funding, and let's just fund as many of them as we can. Every project we can, every not for profit trying to do good. Um, I, I think housing is going to could solve a lot of problems in our community, ranging from inflation to uh, to some degree homelessness. Um, but really, if I get one thing, it would be the magic wand that would impart knowledge and understanding to our community to a level that would allow us to focus on secondary long-term consequences of our actions and, and getting out of the moment, getting out of our ideology and, and figuring out, you know, what are the right economic, political, environmental actions to take that not just solve the problem that's slapping us upside the head right now, but what's going to set your grandkids up for success and keep them around and to be proud of this community. Well, thank you, Scott. And, and my guest tonight has been Scott Beasley, an adventurer, athlete, certified financial planner, lifelong learner, search and rescue volunteer, and volunteer for so many more organizations. We really want to appreciate your joining us, Scott. The purpose of this program is to inspire and invite people to participate in the betterment of our community. You've been listening to The Sages Among Us on KBMR. I'm Lori Burkhart-Frank. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for everything you do to make our community great.